Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Welcome back. I'm Hannah Schultz from the University of Iowa College of Public Health. In today's episode of Share Public Health, we're going to talk about climate change and environmental health. These topics deserve their own series, but we're going to do our best to talk about them here today. We're going to start today's episode with Art Cohen. We've heard from Art a couple times in this series already. His input and work is particularly interesting for today's conversation. In 2017, Cohen wrote a series of editorials about Des Moines water pollution and won a Pulitzer Prize for, quote, editorials fueled by tenacious reporting, impressive expertise, and engaging writing that successfully challenged powerful corporate agricultural interests in Iowa, end quote. I asked almost every guest for this series what the biggest threats to their communities are. There were a couple of themes, and climate change was one of them. Art talks a bit about why climate change is such a threat to Iowa specifically. Nobody watches the weather like farmers, and (laughs) they're concerned about it, and they're concerned about crop yields and they know that they're losing soil, and they know that Des Moines' drinking water is polluted by farm chemicals, and they know that things have to change, and they want to be more resilient. They're scared of these floods and these, you know, torrential rains that end up into a spate of drought, and uh, they can't plan from year to year, and so they're buying into the idea of a more resilient agriculture, whether people in town are, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. There's a lot of big diesel pickups. Poll after poll, Iowans cite climate as a, as a top concern, but yet the, uh, they'll think nothing of uh, driving to Sioux City for an hour to shop in an SUV that gets 10 miles to the gallon. In 30 it's years, they possible. might not be able to grow corn in southern Iowa because of heat. And this is not me BS, and this is Gene Tackley, who shared a Nobel Prize for climate modeling at Iowa State University. So he's the one saying that we, it's going to become difficult growing corn in southern Iowa, southwest Iowa in particular, uh, in, within 30 years, 2050. And he's the one suggesting that there's, there could be a 30 to 35 percent decline in corn yields. But we have all the expertise at Iowa State University to solve this problem, uh, whether it's cover crops or, uh, you know, hemp and switchgrass as an ethanol feedstock. Uh, I mean, we know how to do it. We know how to create a resilient agriculture. The question is, are we willing to pay farmers to do it? Now we're joined by David Osterberg. David served in the Iowa House of Representatives from 1983 to 1995, has worked in health and climate policy at the University of Iowa, and was co-founder of the Iowa Policy Project, among other things. 
I talked with David primarily about wind and solar energy in Iowa. Public policy is what I have done for a long time. Public health policy, because my two areas are energy and water quality, and they're economic development issues, they're health issues, they're uh, the future of Iowa issues, actually. When it comes to renewable energy, you find that the latest numbers for 2019 42% of every kilowatt hour produced in the state of Iowa came from a wind turbine. It is the leading, we lead the nation in the percentage of electricity that we get from uh, wind. We're second in the total wind being produced to Texas. They're way, way ahead of us. But we are number two in the amount, but more important, we're number one in per capita. Anyone who's driven through Iowa has seen some of the thousands of wind turbines across the state. But why? Why wind instead of solar? It kind of looks like the ocean. <laughs> when you look out there, those, those cornfields and soybean fields, um, just like offshore wind is a great place to make, make uh, electricity from wind, so, uh, so are the Great Plains. And we're kind of in the edge of that. And where we are in the edge of it, we produce an awful lot of uh, wind. The Dakotas, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, um, Texas, those are the states that are all big producers of wind. But the point is, Iowa led the nation in 1983, when I was in the legislature, we passed what became to be called a renewable portfolio standard. We told the investor-owned electric companies, you have to have some renewable energy. You may not want to, tough, you have to have it. Really pissed them off, of course. They don't wanna to be told what to do. But in fact, that started the process. And while these companies certainly objected to being told what to do when they were told what to do, and they tried, wind power, they found it was an enormous success and they could make a lot of money. And so you look at one of our investor-owned utilities. Investor-owned, what I mean by that is they are private companies, but they have a monopoly. They have a monopoly in a certain area of the state. Alliant has a monopoly, which tends to be north and maybe east, and mid-American as central and further out towards uh, the West. But because they're a monopoly and you can't trust a monopoly, you have to have them be regulated and they're regulated by a board. And that board tells them what they can do and what they can't do. And so their renewable portfolio standard added that to the things they could be told what to do. And they did it. And now, as I said, 42% of all the electricity produced in the state of Iowa comes from wind turbines, mainly from mid-American, but also from a lot of uh, co-ops out in rural areas. You often have co-ops are the providers of your electricity. Sometimes it's municipalities, city of Ames, a city of uh, Cedar Falls have their own companies uh, in their city. So, um, that's, uh, I guess we need to talk about that because otherwise it doesn't make sense to most people. Most people, this is capitalism. When we think about, uh, we can either go to one coffee shop or another one. In Iowa, you can only go to one. That's mid-American. They have a monopoly. 
but they are a regulated monopoly. And um, that's part of why we find so much wind here. But the other reason, and the, the reason we have to talk about besides policy, is that there's been a transformation in the production of electricity in the world. Wind started up in the 80s and now is very, very big worldwide. Solar is doing the same kind of thing. So uh, renewable energy is solar or wind practically. Also hydro, there's quite a bit of hydro in the well, every place in the world. Uh, hydropower where you dam up um, a, a river and uh, then use the flow of that river to produce electricity. But we're moving away from coal, we're moving uh, towards natural gas because it's so cheap, but we're certainly moving away from coal and we're moving towards renewable energy. David's comments are interesting. Renewable energy makes economic sense, but it started in Iowa due to policy. Let me just talk about solar. And there's two ways of doing it. I read this morning that suck up manufacturing up in Northern Iowa has just put in a, a 780 kilowatt solar array for their production plant. Suck up, you know, does farm equipment and stuff. But that's just short of a megawatt owned by a company that is in the business of um, making grain bins and things like that. Mid-Am only two weeks ago uh, announced that they were going to put three megawatts of solar up in Waterloo. Um, North Iowa Area Community College, and when I read the suck up article, found that in September they broke ground for their community college. Lots of places. Michigan State University has a megawatt and a half on a covering up a, a, a place where people park cars. Problem, of course, is Iowa. We're, we really suck. We are terrible when it comes to solar. We ought to be doing more. But there's two kinds of solar, and that is the big arrays put together by companies or by utility companies. Now, that's different from distributed solar. On my garage roof, I have a two-kilowatt system. It's very small. It's only 20% or so of the total electricity I use. But it's something. And many people are moving towards distributed energy. Now, what that says to a company like MidAmerican, and have I praised them enough for all their wind? They're really good. They are terrible when it comes to solar power because they don't own it. Because they don't own it, it is just like kilowatt hours subtracted from their uh, company that they used to they used to produce. They do not want solar power at distributed solar power. And the reason distributed solar power is so good are sort of several reasons. One, it is subsidized. Therefore, when I put my solar panels up, I got a 30%, 30% of it back as a tax credit, as a federal tax credit, because my Tax appetite is enough. I put a $10,000 system in, about 3,000 I got back that year that I didn't have to pay in taxes. And then Iowa also has one, which was half of the federal. So 45% of the cost of uh, that distributed solar system that I have paid for with tax credits. 
But the other thing that's really important is something called net metering. When I'm producing a little more electricity than I need, and it only happens in the summer when the sun is high, it only happens in a great sunny day, I produce extra kilowatt hours and it goes back to the grid. The same line that brings in power now will take some power out. That's what MidAmerican went after. They tried to figure it out so that I would have to pay an extra $200 a year simply for the privilege of having uh, solar power. That's what they wanted to do. It was a terrible thing to do, and yet they were doing it. They passed it through the Iowa Senate, came roaring, uh, they came both, uh, the Republicans controlled both houses, so came roaring through, and we thought we were in real trouble, we environmentalists. Even more in trouble because some dark money group, they put out a million point two on TV buys saying, you know what, solar energy is okay, but why should you pay for that rich guy's solar power? He has, he's, here he is with this nice solar array on his, uh, on his roof, but you're paying for it because uh, of all these subsidies. Uh, I'm not true, by the way, but the point was they were coming at the few environmental groups and the solar industry trying to, you know, keep some jobs going. There were about 800 of those jobs statewide. Well, how were we going to stop this? A giant company, big advertising blitz. We stopped them with the Iowa Pork Producers Association. And if you think about it for about a tenth of a second, they have awfully big roofs and uh, these big CAFOs. And they have an awful lot of demand to keep them hogs cool in the summertime. They are natural place to have solar power. And they knew that. And they saw Mid-American coming at this and decided we're not going to let them do it. And they didn't. We stopped that company cold. This was 2019. The 2020 legislative session, instead of continuing to fight because Mid-Am knew they were dead, they could not go forward, they made a deal with Pork producers, the environmentalists, Mid-American got together, and they're now coming up with some kind of a deal before the Iowa Utilities Board, which is where you're supposed to make these kinds of decisions, on what's going to happen with net metering. And the outline of the plan is for the next seven years, you get net metering. That is, when I'm producing more kilowatt hours, then it goes to my neighbor Jackie over here, because it doesn't go very far when I'm producing it they will continue to pay me net metering. And after that, they don't just get to figure out the prices, they have to do a study, an authoritative study on what really is the value of solar. And when they do that, we'll find it's gonna be pretty close to net meter. So there's an interesting story. So uh, to wrap up, first, you got big, either community solar or massive solar put together by utility companies or you know, manufacturing companies like Succo. And that is incredibly cheap. It is so cheap, it is cheaper than an existing coal-fired power plant. And that's why so many of them are closing down. Iowa just lost its only nuclear power plant this year, a few months ago, because it could no longer compete with wind and solar. 
from a brand new plant. It's an old plant. It's nearly 40 years old. It's been there a long time. It's all depreciated, but it doesn't matter. Kilowatt hours, how much it costs to produce those kilowatt hours with an old existing plant is more than a brand new solar or wind plant. And that's going on worldwide. And that's what's going to, if we have a chance of uh, stopping climate change, that's one of the big reasons is the technology has come down in price so much. And good public policy has made that happen. And here we are now in Iowa with great opportunities. And finally, Mid-Am, they've been terrible. I mean, they, I, they put a three megawatts is a lot of solar. But to put it in perspective, it's about as much as one of their turbines. <laughs> they have 2,000 turbines. And their three megawatts is only about the size of one of their GE 2.3 megawatt machines that they're putting up right now. So, but the other part, which has a lot of capacity and a lot of potential as well, is this distributed power. Why don't I use my roof to make some electricity? It's there. It's already there. I don't tear up ground. I don't do anything. And since it's so close, it's just a natural way of uh, doing some solar. Utility companies hate it. And right now in the state of Iowa, we're going to continue to have both kinds of solar. And I think we have a great future in renewable energy in the state. So to state the obvious, this is a public health podcast. Why are we talking about renewable energy? Why does David work with the University of Iowa College of Public Health? When it comes to health, there is no question. Solar and wind are superior to coal all the time. We've got to deal with climate change. It is the most serious threat to public health we have ever seen happen in the world. And uh, solar and wind are one of the ways in which we can continue to have the society we have, um, the economy we have, and yet not pollute ourselves. I really appreciate David Osterberg's comments and experience with renewable energy and his clear connection of climate change and health. We started today's episode talking with Art Cullen and mentioned his writing about water pollution. For the rest of today's episode, we're going to talk about water. We'll turn now to David Swertney. I'll let him introduce himself. I'm a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Iowa. Uh, I also direct the Center for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination, uh, which is a state-funded research center, uh, really looking at the links between environmental toxins and public health. And we have a particular expertise in in drinking water issues here in, in Iowa and across the Midwest. I'll admit, I almost never think about water quality. I live in a city with city water and it rarely crosses my mind. So what should we be thinking about when it comes to water quality in Iowa? Well, here in Iowa, we um, have a pretty um, well-engineered or sort of completely re-engineered landscape as a result of our agricultural activities. And so, um, you know, we've, we take for granted that we have um, a lot of inputs to our land and we benefit from those in terms of the economic outputs that, that come out due to agriculture. We, you know, we lead in corn, we lead in soy, um, but, you know, that, that takes work. There's chemical inputs from the pesticides that we use. Um, there's fertilizers and nutrients that we apply. And lately, um, to t- you know, because of the big 
boom we've had in Iowa, particularly in animal agriculture. You know, we have about 20 million hogs in the state. You know, there's a lot of readily available manure and the nutrients it contains that we take advantage of as a cheap form of, of fertilizer. And so we land apply all that. And so that ends up being a, a big challenge in terms of what we end up applying on the land almost inevitably finds its way into our water resources, whether it be surface waters like, like the river systems we have here as part of the Mississippi watershed um, or our groundwater and some of the aquifers that we have a lot of rural residents in Iowa relying on for their, their water supply. So, uh, you know, a lot of the work we do is trying to think about, you know, the, the risks to public health associated with exposures that come through drinking water. A lot of our focus is on agricultural inputs, the uh, pesticide exposures, the nutrient exposures. Um, there's been a lot of work done thinking about nitrate as a contaminant and the risks that it might pose, not just for how we've historically worried about nitrate for things like uh, blue baby syndrome and its ability to influence how oxygen is transported in the body, but also for you know, emerging evidence that there might be more chronic long-term health effects resulting from nitrate exposure and drinking water, things like bladder cancer or colorectal cancer and birth defects and um, things that might be at levels that you know, the, the regulatory bodies like the EPA might have standards in place that, that you know, don't account for these health effects. And you might be getting exposure to what, what many people consider safe and still have these risks associated with the exposure. Um, all this is compounded by the fact that in Iowa, you know, we don't just have these, these sort of man, you know, human made inputs that we, we have in our water supply. You know, we still have a very heavy groundwater reliance. Um, if you're not in a big city, you're, you're pretty much almost certainly on groundwater. And, and so most of the rural residents of Iowa are using groundwater. And then you have all the same challenges that anybody on groundwater would have. Um, naturally occurring contaminants like arsenic and manganese that can be present in the water supply that are there and needing to be dealt with. Um, and then of course the challenge with all that is, you know, you can't really see those or taste those. It all just depends on if you're doing enough robust monitoring to understand that they're there so that if they are, you know, a necessary treatment can be put in place. Um, you know, the challenge, particularly for rural Iowans and, and lots of places in the rural Midwest is people that aren't being served by public water systems that are regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act, but are actually relying on private wells that are unregulated um, usually unmonitored. There's no requirements in, in most places for routine monitoring of those wells. Um, and so the homeowners are really on their own to make sure that their water is safe. And, and that has numerous challenges um, in terms of, you know, do the people that run at wells um, understand that they're responsible for making sure their water is safe? Are they able to seek out resources to help them with testing so they can understand what risks are posed to them? And then in the event they find something, are they able to um, get access to an alternative supply or do rehabilitations on their wells to fix any damage that might be leading to contamination or treatment system they can install in their home? You know, there's a big economic burden there uh, for people that are on private supplies, if they are even aware of they might have. You know, if you are on a regulated supply, a public water system, there are mandates federally at how frequently you have to test and what you have to test for. And so we have schedules that are usually pretty good, but there are some disparities. A bigger city will test more frequently than a smaller community. And so I think a big concern is, you know, at the, at the 
risk of potentially creating more regulatory burden uh, for these smaller communities. Are we, sa- are we not sampling enough to, and, and testing enough to understand where there might be variability in water quality, uh, particularly when you have things that vary seasonally like agricultural inputs, where you can see pretty dramatic swings in our water quality around things like nitrate, depending on rainfall events and when farmers might be applying the land. On top of all that, you know, our analytical instrumentation has gotten incredibly good. Um, that's probably an understatement over the last several years. And you know, in many instances, you can find whatever you're looking for. Um, and so we have the ability now to sort of find the needle in the haystack of needles with a lot of our analytical tools. And I think that actually puts a big, big sort of, you know, onus on public health researchers that, that think about water quality issues to be able to really explain, um, you know, what the risks are of, you know, when you find something in a water supply. So there's been so much attention lately on things like pharmaceuticals and personal care products and, and things that we use in our everyday lives as consumers that then end up in our drinking water supply and should we be worried about those? And I think the jury is still out in that, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that we find them just based on how our sort of wastewater is linked to our drinking water. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't be cavalier and think that maybe it's not a big deal that they're there. And we, that's why we've been doing, you know, a lot of folks are doing research on that. You know, at the same time, there's different types of contaminants these days, like these perfluorinated chemicals that are all over the United States and impacting rural communities that might be situated next to landfills or military installations or firefighting facilities that are sources for these perfluorinated chemicals. You know, there we absolutely need analytical methods that help us detect down to parts per trillion or nanogram per liter levels, because that's where the data is showing that there's health effects. And so, you know, it's a, the PFAS are a great example of a chemical class that if we didn't have these analytical advances, we may not even realize that what the problems are, because we probably couldn't find them at the levels in which they pose, you know, significant risk. I asked David what people don't know about or what he wishes they understood about water quality and safety. It's funny. I think, you know, the average American, uh, I've been interacting with a lot of people in different settings that, um, you know, if you're on a centralized supply, you tend to believe that your drinking water is good enough. Um, you know, I've heard people describe to me their drinking water as it's a problem, but not a crisis. And there's just so many crises these days that it's hard to get worked up over, you know, is my drinking water safe enough? Um, but, you know, everybody, it, it links everybody as, as sort of silly as that sounds. Everybody needs it to live. Um, if you're drinking your, your doctor recommended doses, um, that, you know, it can be a lot, you know, like two liters is that's the type of level per day that people are encouraged to drink to stay healthy and hydrated. And it is a direct input um, into us, into our bodies. And if it's contaminated, we run the risk of, of bearing the brunt of that over the time in which we're drinking it. And so, you know, I think we want to be aware of, of what's there because I think it is a big determinant on our health. Um, but it's one that we can take for granted if we just assume that everything is okay. Um, there's a good example of this. We've been looking at sodium levels in groundwater. And, um, you know, there are some places that rely on really salty groundwater for their drinking water. And if, if someone was taking their recommended doses of water a day to stay hydrated, they'd be getting some really large, like almost half of their allowable sodium intake per day just to their water alone. And if you think of someone who might be trying to stay on a low sodium diet or have hypertensive uh, disorders, um, you know, that, that's something that they may not even appreciate if, if we aren't really thinking, you know, holistically about what's in our water supply and how it's ultimately linked to, to our health. And so um, it's one of those things that, you know, we need to be vigilant of because, I guess the other piece to this is that we often don't, you know, if you ask most Americans where their water comes from, they say the tap. 
you know, and it's rarely, you know, there are some instances where it's polluted by things that we do say with the plumbing in our homes with lead and copper, but often if your water is contaminated, you have no idea because something else caused that or somebody else caused that. And so it, I think it's, it's human nature to assume that if it's, you know, coming to my home, it's gotta be clean. Um, but it doesn't, it's not always that way. And so it's the challenge to make sure that we're sort of being vigilant to ensure water supplies are safe, but not being sort of uh, sensationalistic where we undermine consumer confidence in the quality of water that's being delivered to homes. So what is it that we don't understand about our water? I think the average American doesn't understand what's in it. Um, I think everybody assumes it's, you know, quote unquote safe. Um, I think that assumption is right, like 90%, 95% of the time. And so it's, um, it's not a bad assumption to have, but, um, I think one of the things we've been, I've always been surprised at when you talk to people, um, about their water is a general confidence that it's fine. But if you ask them, well, have you ever worried about this? Or do you know if this is in it, they'll, it'll largely be, you know, I have no idea. And why would that be there? Um, so I think there is an awareness issue. Um, one thing that particularly worries me in, in, is that, you know, we do have, you know, laws in place to regulate our water supplies. If you're on a public system, if you're not, you know, on your own private well, you know, and that's the Safe Drinking Water Act, but the Safe Drinking Water Act has not sort of stayed up to date as, as well as it should. You know, we, we new chemicals uh, regulated as quickly as we should. You can certainly end up with water that meets the, the letter of the law, but you know is contaminated with unsafe chemicals because we have not regulated them yet. And we're too slow politic, you know, as the political process or as the policy process plays out to get that done. So those sorts of things worry me as well. And it actually, it, it makes for a really wicked uh, science communication problem where you're trying to make sure people are as informed as possible. And like I said earlier, you don't want to undermine their confidence in what's coming out of their water. Uh, out of their taps and, and the water into their homes. But there are legitimately times when, you know, we should question whether, you know, the water is as safe as we assume it to be just because we know the, that there are holes in how we regulate our drinking water and there, and there shouldn't be. In a perfect world, we would, we would not have those in place and, and we would make sure that what was being delivered was unequivocally safe by the best science that we have available to us in terms of dose response and toxicology and everything else that we understand. It's also hard to communicate to people that, you know, we put things in intentionally into our water to clean it, that make it dirtier. And so we have to be controlled in how we do that. And so that's the process of disinfection. So, you know, water treatment's a trade-off. We would, we certainly want to kill pathogens that are in the water supply. So that's why we add disinfectants like, uh, like free chlorine to do that. But we know that that comes at a consequence of potentially adding things like disinfection byproducts, which is one of the regulated chemical classes that we have the most number of violations of every year in terms of public drinking water systems. Um, and we know that things like chloroform that get generated as a byproduct of disinfection are a carcinogen. Um, we know that there are unsafe, unsafe uh, levels that, that we can get exposed to in water, but we choose to still disinfect because we see the, the threat from pathogens is greater than, than the threat of the, the, the long-term um, chronic effects from the, the byproducts. And we also hope that the water quality engineers that are doing the processes at the treatment plant are measured enough in doing that treatment to make sure that we're not generating too many unwanted byproducts, but we do it. I mean, we add things to our water that change its quality and that's a necessary sort of evil, if you think of it that way, for 
delivering safe water supply under the risk paradigm that we use to determine, you know, what is an acceptable level of risk and, and what is safe for drinking water. To wrap up the conversation with David Squirtney, I asked him what he recommends for people who either aren't on city drinking water or for people like me who don't know a whole lot about their water supply. I would always advocate uh, awareness um, and that, you know, finding the resources available to them at the, in the county or the, the city in which they live or the state in which they live in terms of getting their water supply tested. Uh, I think that's really critical for things like lead and copper, which we know comes from older homes. So, I mean, I would advocate and encourage anybody to think about, you know, where their risks are from the water supply. You know, do you live in an old building? Are you in a rural setting? You know, if you're on a private well, hopefully you're a little bit more aware of those risks. Um, and then once you've thought about those, seek out resources. It's do have, they're, they're not well advertised, really not well funded enough to help everybody, but there usually are resources here and there to help people better understand what's in their water, their water supply, uh, from resources to help with testing to if you're a private well, like we have the Grants to Counties program here in the state of Iowa, which is a great program where every year money is put into an account to help well users test their water supply for nitrate, arsenic, and bacteria. There's money in there to help uh, rehabilitate damaged wells, if, and that's important if, if, if a well damage is leading to contamination. And then to plug abandoned wells, because we know if you have an abandoned well, it's essentially a straight shot down into the aquifer that can lead to contamination. So it's a great program. We just we know that here in Iowa, it's the, all the money is never fully utilized. Lots of people aren't aware it's there for them. Um, so I would just encourage everybody to seek out those resources. And if they, they, they don't want to do the work, because it can be a little daunting where to start, seek out help from you know, your local county public health agencies. If you're in a college town, seek out the academics and the researchers on campus usually people are happy to help push you in the right direction. So um, try to be proactive. That would be the best advice I can give because if there's resources that can help plug the gap of what you know, um, you should take advantage of that. We'll turn now to Brian Honiff for a local perspective on water quality and the importance of monitoring water. Brian is the Director of Public Health in Cerro Gordo County in North Central Iowa, but his background and passion is in environmental health. We started our conversation by talking about why it's important to think about water quality. With water, it's so easy, right, to just turn on the tap and not think about what's really in it. So much can get into it. Uh, that's why public water supplies are so heavily regulated. Um, and, and people should understand that they can reach out to their public water supply and request a report of all the contaminants that they test for. Um, it, it's what we pay for in our water bill, and uh, we pay for that testing. Uh, it's necessary. It's important. Uh, the problem is there's no regulatory requirement for people who live on a farm or live in a rural part of the state or country, for that matter, to get their water tested uh, to find out, you know, some of the basic contaminants that might be in that. Um, you know, coliform bacteria is an indicator bacteria. In and of itself, it's not going to make you sick, but it will tell us that if there's, if there's an avenue or a way in which uh, contaminants can get down into the well, um, basically from the top down. The problem with arsenic is, at least in our case, is it's a kind of a bottom-up problem where the rocks that we drill through contain arsenic. And 
for in our case, it was iron pyrite, uh, had to deal with the iron levels that would um, either be oxygenated or oxygen removed in those certain states would precipitate that arsenic into the water supply. So as water moves up in the column and down in the column, it introduces oxygen um, as that moves through that chamber. And when we turn our water on, it draws that down. And when we turn our water off, it pushes it up. So there's a constant movement of air in that column. Um, and so it, it's important because number one, arsenic is one of the most deadliest substances known to man. Um, it, it, is, it is incredibly toxic in the human body. Uh, it impacts multiple organs and it really doesn't have any limits to what it can't impact depending on the levels. And so um, knowing what your level is, knowing if you have it, um, and, 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 that, and that limit now is 10 parts per billion. Some would argue that 10 is too high. Um, I would like to research that um, and determine, well, there's a whole host of additional steps we would like to take as far as where we go from here, as far as the research goes and the science. But um, yeah, arsenic is, is nothing that we should be consuming and trying to eliminate that as much as possible from certainly from our drinking water and, and our food in some cases. Um, people need to know where it comes from and make sure that they, they, they don't ingest it. Cerro Gordo County had a problem with arsenic a few years ago. Brian told me a bit more about that. A little background uh, on that, it's arsenic in the groundwater here, um, kind of started with public water supplies. Uh, public water supplies had to be monitoring arsenic. Um, and, and back in the, I don't know, late, like 1980s, 1990s, um, arsenic levels were allowed to be at 50 parts per billion. Um, they were monitoring that uh, and I don't remember exactly when they had to start monitoring for arsenic, but um, Mason City's public water supply triggered um, the highest known arsenic concentration to this day um, at, a, I think it was 567 parts per billion. And yeah, so when I, when I brought that up with some of my other counterparts around the country, um, they say, I say, you know, 567 parts per billion. And they say, oh yeah, well, how about this? Uh, there's parts in Wisconsin where I've, I've been told they've had 15,000 parts per billion. So we're not the only area of the country that has problems with arsenic, but um, we didn't know where that arsenic was coming from. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Van Dorp, um, he has since passed away, he's a friend uh, and a colleague used to work for the Iowa Geological Survey Bureau, had a real interest in this issue of arsenic in groundwater. And so he was doing some research um, just kind of on his own, looking at the data uh, and looking at the well morphologies that uh, might give him some indication of where it was coming from. And so we worked with him a little bit. He had sent some information to our department over in the early 2000s. And um, we knew we had a problem. We just, we had really didn't know where it was coming from. He had an, he had an idea. He had a speculation, but, uh, we really didn't have any money or any way to deal with it or really study it. So, uh, we kind of just limped along for a while, um, without a, really any 
significant known. Um, we didn't have any money to put toward getting into the research of it uh, until about 2000. Oh, six or seven, um, Lorelei Karimsky with the State Hygienic Lab at the time um, contacted our department and, and wanted to look into the data a little bit more, what we had for data comparing it to the data that they had um, in, in their database, because a lot of the samples were going through them. So we shared all of our water tests at the time. It was, I don't know, over a thousand water tests. We estimate we have about 3,200 wells in our county. Um, so we've, I mean, at the time, I think we had tested not quite a third, maybe a little bit over a quarter of those wells. Um, and she was using a grad student to kind of pick apart some of the data to see if there was anything else that she could find. And um, we kind of started to talk as a group a little bit more. And eventually in 2000, I think it was 2009, 2000, maybe late 2008, um, CDC came out with some uh, some money that would, was made available through their Environmental Health Specialist Network, EHSNet. Um, that, <clears throat> that program was paying for some research related to food safety issues in environmental health. Um, and and several, several parts of the country were getting some of those funds, and Iowa Department of Public Health is one of those. So we were working with the Department of Public Health doing some food sample collection for their research. Anyway, um, <clears throat> we were familiar with SNET. When SNET came out with SNET Water, we we talked about it internally about applying for some some of those funds to help pay for the research. And so we proposed it to this kind of network of, of team that we had been talking with, State Hygienic Laboratory, um, couple of other, uh, DNR, Paul Van Dorp, um, and, and they were all very much on board. I talked to Pam Mollenhauer, who at the time was with SHL, and um, we developed kind of a hypothesis, but we brought a whole bunch more partners in. We brought in Dave Swartney from Cheek. Um, I reached out to uh, Dr. Doug Schneblin, who was a co-primary investigator with me. Um, I knew him from the U.S. Geological Survey Bureau, um, he, he had an interest in looking at arsenic, but they didn't, they had a little money, but not very much money. And they wanted us to partner with them, uh, back in the early two thousands on trying to start researching this arsenic issue. It just didn't come to, but I never forgot Doug and Doug's a great guy. He then trained, he went from the USGS to the university of Iowa. So we reached out to Doug. Doug was hundred percent on board. We brought Doug on board. Um, he had a grad student that he, he, uh, kind of brought into the, into the mix as well. Uh, we brought in a private well contractor, uh, Shaver Well Company was brought on board as a partner. Um, and we're really instrumental in, in a lot of the policy changes that we then implemented based on the work that we did. Anyway, long story short, brought this group of people together. We developed a hypothesis. We put together a really good application. We submitted it to the CDC and it was accepted. So in 2010, we started that, that grant, that five-year grant, uh, it was about 506,000 over the course of five years. And um, I think it produced some of the best, some of the best water quality work we've seen in, I think, several decades because of the, the, the long-term impacts that I believe that that will have and, and the ability to, 
test arsenic across this state using Grants to County's funds. Um, I, I, I just, I can't, I mean, it's one of my, one of my greatest achievements being a part of that. I don't take ownership of the entire project by any means. I was I really didn't do a lot of the work. It was Sophia Walsh, uh, Dan Reese in our office. It was people like, um, Paul Van Dorp. It was people like Lorelai Karimsky, Sherry Marine, those people at the, at the lab. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was a fantastic group project. Ryan Budkey from Shaver. I mean, a lot of these agencies, they just, we all got together and we worked really well together and produced a fantastic piece of public health, environmental health work. So the project itself uh, ramped up over one year. Uh, we hired uh, basically a, a field expert, somebody to, to kind of lead the charge and do a lot of the work out in the, out in the community. Um, that was year one. Year two, three, and four was the data collection. So we collected um, a, a pretty significant volume of water supply, water tests from uh, about 70 homes that we enrolled in the program. Before we enrolled uh, homes in the program, we needed to reach out to these homes and, and ask them if they were interested. Um, we had to select those wells based on a certain criteria and wells needed to have certain criteria met before we could enroll them. We, we found about 115, 110 wells that could be enrolled. So we reached out to those 110 and again, about 70 said, sure, we're happy to participate. So that's a 70, you know, a 70 plus percent um, positive enrollment rate, which was, which is unheard of. Um, but so, so we did all the water tests. We collected water uh, in, in the wet months and the dry months, and those are clearly defined um, what time of year those were. But we collected two sample sets um, over the course of that time. And then the last year was simply looking at the data and then uh, looking at how we address policy. To, so to answer your question, wh what, was, what was the outcome? What was the end result? Well, the goal, the, the, the final goal was to impact a, a policy change that would otherwise provide public health protections. And we did that successfully by adopting a revised well ordinance in our county that required drilling depths um, to be increased through our Lime Creek formation uh, down to uh, the Cedar Valley Aquifer. And in some cases that added 100 to 150 feet to a person's well, um, but it was necessary. Not only did we drill through the Lime Creek formation down to the Cedar Valley Aquifer, but we also had to case that and grout it. So what that did was seal off that, that aquifer with arsenic contaminated water, which was coming from the rock, it was precipitating out of the rock. So we seal that off um, and, and it led to uh, significant improvement in the number of wells that we were seeing arsenic in. Now you might ask, why was Shaver Well Company interested in that? They were interested because they would go out and drill a new well um, to 300 feet. Um, somebody would pay $50 a foot for that well. Uh, you know, it's $15,000. And then we go out and take a water test and they find out that there's arsenic. Hmm. Now who's on the hook? Well, the well drillers are usually the first in line. Uh, the homeowner says, well, why do I have arsenic in my water? You drilled me a brand new well. So by figuring out how to minimize that exposure and change how wells are installed, um, they can then not only give accurate information to their customers, but also drill them a safe well. And so um, we changed our local ordinance 
uh, to require um, those items that I just told you, fully cased holes uh, that are drilled through the Lime Creek into the Cedar Valley Aquifer. Um, and um, then that was used also to adjust and make the case to the state of Iowa to include um, testing for arsenic through the Grants County's program statewide. And now we know that we have a much broader um, problem of arsenic throughout the state than just say in Cerro County or surrounding counties uh, around us. So it, it, yeah, I think it's been a fantastic project that has what will likely lead to um, significant reductions in uh, arsenic poisoning. We had a member of our public who was also a partner with us um, who Jack and Sandy Davis, there's a video of them on our website that um, they uh, dealt with, <clears throat> Sandy dealt with some pretty serious neurological issues from drinking a lot of arsenic contaminated water. They drank 70 part per billion uh, arsenic water for many years. They had a house on, a, on Clear Lake, they still do. Um, and uh, she had, yeah, she, she talks about her neurological problems. So yeah, I mean, a, a lot of things uh, kind of culminated from that project, but namely um, we had policy change that impacted how wells are drilled and how, how, uh, how they're cased. If we're talking about bacterial contamination, we, we recommend people test their well um, at least every couple of years. Uh, if they have problems, then it wouldn't hurt to be doing that annually. Some of our research that we looked into for arsenic was how is, is there is there a great fluctuation in the value of arsenic, not only in the wet months and the dry months, but year after year. And we know that um, we know that there's not a lot of fluctuation in those numbers. Um, we we also studied arsenic um, and this gets into the chemistry, arsenic three and arsenic five which you combine those two gives you a total arsenic value. Um, it, it's important to know the difference in what type of arsenic you have because that can impact treatment. What we learned is that most of our wells had arsenic five. And so what that means is you just need a more robust treatment process, which basically requires reverse osmosis. Back to arsenic, um, what we learned is arsenic arsenic doesn't need to be sampled all that often. I mean, it, it's, it's once you have it, you have it in the flow and it doesn't change a great deal on total arsenic. It may shift some between arsenic three and arsenic five. But um, again, we treat, we treat for worst case scenario. So we always recommend people install the reverse osmosis versus uh, maybe a lesser treatment that would just take out arsenic three. And so to, to let the viewers know, I mean, testing for arsenic once I, I think once every five years is probably reasonable but you're still not going to see a lot of fluctuation when you have it you have it as i said in brian's intro he's an environmental health guy so i asked a question that has always been confusing to me why are public health and environmental health sometimes separate i've never understood why they're separate um i've always worked in agencies where well i can't say that Polk County uh, has environmental health housed within secondary roads. And I would say most of your larger um, 
counties, that's how it's structured. Um, it, I think it's important that they work together. I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, over, not overlap, but there's so much ability of the, of the agencies to support one another and provide assistance to one another. For example, I mean, when you get a foodborne outbreak that happens, um, utilizing nursing skills and environmental health services in order to do, and we, environmental health does the inspections and in facilities. Um, we, we bring a lot to the table when it comes to epidemiology investigations. Uh, nurses also provide, uh, provide some support and assistance um, with that epidemiological um, process as well. So, I mean, I think, I think those are, they, they go well together. Uh, it, it just, it's, it's the right network that should be utilized. And so I've never understood why they're separate, but again, it's 99 counties. When you've seen one health department, you've seen one health department. That's a wrap for today's episode of Share Public Health. Thanks so much for tuning in. Join us next week as we talk about cultural identities and rural communities. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.